Okay, <clears throat> so the book of Ecclesiastes. This is uh, this is an interesting book. It's uh, a pretty safe bet that um, not many of you have studied Ecclesiastes, this book, before. But uh, if you have, then that's, that's fine too. Uh, let's go ahead and read the first 11 verses. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? The generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Also the earth, the sun rises and the sun sets, and hastening to its place it rises there again. Blowing toward the south and turning toward the north, the wind continues swirling along, and on its circular courses the wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. All things are wearisome, man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one might say, See, this is new? Already it has existed for ages which were before us. There is no remembrance of earlier things, and also of the later things which will occur. There will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. <clears throat> It is easy to get off on the wrong foot in Ecclesiastes. Really, I think most of us have had, uh, if we've been Christians for a while, we've had a, an impression of this book that is negative. Um, I mean, we just read this thing, and it kind of sounds like a depressed person, doesn't it? <clears throat> in fact, let's jump over to chapter 6 for a second. And I want to read you something over there. Chapter 6, verse 12. For who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime, during the few years of his futile life? He will spend them like a shadow, for who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? Well, is this a grumpy old man? Is he talking about monotony? Is he talking about a boring life? Is he a petulant king who has had it all and done it all and has had power and fame and money and women and all these things. Is he just a childish king who cannot be satisfied with life? I don't think so. I don't think that's what's going on. Would the church fathers, who were actually Jewish, would the church fathers have included this in the canon, in the Bible, if that's what this message was about, if that's what this book was about? I think the first problem we have is that there's a historical pushback, a historical stigma, if you like, about Ecclesiastes. And I think that colors our perception right off the bat. There's something else, too, though. In these 11 verses, notice there's a lot about nature in here, isn't there? Verses 3, actually 9 verses, verses 3 through 11. There's a lot about nature, isn't it? And we can't. we tend to think, you know, Someone has stepped out the door of their house and looked up in the sky and said, Man, what a boring world. A little bit later on, he'll say something that sounds like knowledge is pain. In the chapter after that, chapter 3, he'll say something that sounds like timing is everything. 
In the same chapter, chapter 3, he'll say, Eat, drink, and be merry, for we die. In chapter 9, he'll say, Everything is a crapshoot. And in chapter 10, he poses the idea that money is the answer to everything. What do you think? You think this is really what he's saying? Is 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 someone we'll we'll examine later who this might be, but is someone who's written this, the writer of this book, is he really trying to put us on such a bummer and saying such negative things? I don't think so. This is the same man who will say several times throughout the book where he says God gives to men. God gives gifts to men. In chapter 3, at least three times, and, and I think a few more than that, he'll say, fear God. In chapter 7, we have mention of the fall, the fall of man. In chapter 9, we have several elements of the gospel. Uh, original sin, sin's penalty. In chapter 3, backing up again, he'll spend most of the chapter of chapter 3 championing God's sovereignty, that is, God's uh, right. In that same chapter, chapter 3, he'll, he'll celebrate God's wisdom. And if all that wasn't enough, and there's more, but he'll also, for most of the book, chapters 5 through 12, he will give a sermon directed to both unbelievers and believers on contentment. Yes, most of the book is actually a sermon on contentment. Let's go back to these verses again. Verses 1 through 11. I've called this the teacher's thesis abstract. This is the hook he gives us out front to get us interested in what he's going to say. And I think that once we understand what he's done with these first 11 verses, we'll understand the rest of the book. So in these uh, nine verses, three through 11, we'll, we'll come back to the preacher, son of David, and we'll come back to vanity of vanities. We'll spend some time just on those things. But what he's done in these nine verses, these first nine verses, three through 11, is he has, he's not talking about nature. He's not saying those things are boring or monotonous. What he's doing is he's using nature as a backdrop because in a backdrop for his actual subject. He'll never bring up nature again after verse 11. But he does bring something else up again after verse 11, and he mentions it many times in verses 3 through 11. And what you're going to find, look at verse 3. Look at verse 3. What's the fourth word? Man. Now let's go down to verse 11, and look at the last few words. Uh, second half of verse 11. There will be for them no remembrance among those who will come. Do you see what he's done? Four or five times in, in verse 11, and, well, twice actually in verse 3, he's mentioned man. He begins with man, he ends with man, and more than 13 times in nine verses, he refers to man. This passage is about man. Is he saying man, man competes with nature. Man has no permanence, whereas nature does. Man has little significance, 
and yet nature does creation does man is not able to leave his uh, make an impact or 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 make a stamp or even do anything creative did you notice that even though man is mentioned so many times there's nothing creative about those mentions man is not making a mark on his world and yet the world stands immobile stands solid stands unchanging and what does man do by contrast he flits in and out of the scene man is not the master of his environment nature mocks man by its permanence that this is this is a broken world and God has made it that way on purpose and not only has God made it that way on purpose he's made it for a purpose turn if you will with me over to Romans Romans chapter 8. So more than a thousand years after the writer of Ecclesiastes wrote, wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, over a thousand years later, Paul comes to a point where he mentions the same topic. Let's start at verse 18, Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation, verse 20, was subject to fertility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it in hope. So in a way, the book of Ecclesiastes is a commentary on Romans 8.20. God did something. God did something after the fall. Now, the fall didn't create this project. The fall created corruption, yes. We see that many places in Scripture. In fact, you read further on and you'll see. Look at verse 21. The creation it's itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth until now. Sin corrupted life. But here's the thing. God went one step further and made this into a project. He turned the corruption into a riddle that man wants to solve, tries desperately to solve, and God made that also. He, he put that desire to solve it in man. We'll see that as we go through Ecclesiastes. But for now, just look at the fact that, that the writer of Ecclesiastes... So go back to Ecclesiastes. The writer of Ecclesiastes is saying the world is broken and it's a undecipherable kind of riddle and man is spends most of his life trying to solve that riddle and God has made the riddle and he's made our wanting to solve it. And to give you a little spoiler, we'll find out later, we'll find the fact that God made the riddle and made us want to solve it. He did one more thing. He made it unsolvable. And he did so, the writer of Ecclesiastes will tell us, just as Paul in Romans says, in hope, the writer of Ecclesiastes will say, he did so to make men come to him. In fact, what the writer of Ecclesiastes is going to do is he's going to pose this riddle and he's going to say your response to the riddle 
is is a form of the gospel. The the riddle itself is the form of uh, kind of a form of the gospel, and your response to it is either going to be indignation and anger toward God for what He did, or acceptance of what He did, ascribing to God the right to do what He did, and entering into the fear of God, and entering into His family. Ecclesiastes is really an apologetic. It's a major apologetic. In fact, the word apologetic doesn't mean making an apology. It actually, uh, you know, if you were to Google it or look up in the dictionary, you'd find that it means giving an answer. Giving an answer. Giving a defense. The book of Ecclesiastes is really unique in some ways, but it also parallels another book. And the book that it parallels in a lot of ways, there's a lot of touch points between Ecclesiastes and Job. Ecclesiastes answers the question that Job leaves unanswered. Ecclesiastes actually spawned a Vietnam-era anti-war song. Yes, it did. And you may or may not know that the Birds had some connection with that, the 60s rock group, uh, the Birds, and, uh, and Pete Seeger were both involved in that. But the Birds and Seeger both got it wrong. They got Ecclesiastes wrong, even though they quoted from it in their music. Uh, Roger McGinn and Chris Hellman, who were both members of the rock group The Birds, actually got Ecclesiastes right, inasmuch as both those men became Christians. I've already mentioned that half the book is a sermon on contentment. It's a wonderful book. And then the last thing I'll say is uh, today's Jews, the modern, the modern uh, Jew, actually uses Ecclesiastes in their celebration of the Feast of Booths which I believe they do every fall. And they actually read from Ecclesiastes, and they, um, and what the Feast of Booths is celebrating is the fact that they suffered, you know, through wandering in the desert. And uh, when they read Ecclesiastes, they're kind of using it in such a way that, you know, God was faithful, and even though they had no home, uh, God was their home. Even in the middle of the desert, God was their home. So that sort of thing. Both Job and Ecclesiastes, both wisdom books, there are five wisdom books in the Bible, Psalms, uh, Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. The Jews have always grouped those into a category called wisdom, and we continue to do that today. Uh, but Job and Ecclesiastes have some in interesting uh, touch points, some interesting intersections. They both deal with a world that doesn't make sense, and they both answer the question about the meaning of life with trust God. But the way they get to that answer is different. The books get there in different ways. For example, in Job, the questioner is a believer who, like uh, other Jewish uh, and Christian people, are puzzled by God's doings uh, and the case is made in Job. Most of the book of Job is devoted to making a case for the God-ordained, love-empowered existence of life's inequities. Yet, Job at least does not ever answer why. There's no explanation of why. And what happens in Job is that faith is encouraged in spite of those inequities. In Ecclesiastes, it's assumed that the reader is an unbeliever. 
who is indignant toward God, who is angry at God, who blames God, who says to God, you made a mistake, God. And the reason for life's inequities, that they are a vehicle designed to bring man to God, is revealed in the book. And from that, springboarding from that, is the call to faith in response to them. Furthermore, the book of Job tells of one man's suffering, is the account of one man's suffering, that is a vehicle to communicate to believers the worthiness of God. Ecclesiastes, on the other hand, it makes the case for the whole world being subject to suffering in order to communicate to the unbeliever the grace of God. The grace of God. That's Ecclesiastes uh, as an introduction. We'll stop there and we'll pick up um, at verse 12 and we'll continue on. And what we'll do there is we will, um, we will look at uh, who the uh, author of the book of, Eccles of Ecclesiastes probably is. And I hope you'll, um, I hope you'll benefit from that. Now, I want to say something. J. Vernon McGee, the um, famous uh, preacher and pastor of, 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 of days gone by, uh, once the pastor of the very famous Church of the Open Door, in downtown Los Angeles. Um, he is said to have had a plaque on the pulpit in his church. And the plaque was situated in such a way that no one could see it except him. So I assume that it must have been under something or behind something or, you know, it wasn't visible to the congregation, in other words. And it is said that that plaque had the words, Sir, we would see Jesus. And it is said that he did that to remind himself every single time he came to the pulpit to not forget that everything we study in the Bible has to somehow, has even if we can't always see it clearly, it, it definitely, it definitely filters out to a message about Jesus Christ. It has to. In fact, I'd go so far to say that any time you see in the Bible God acting in any way that is not judgment, you are seeing Jesus Christ. Because there's no other reason for God to do that. There's no other reason for God to lift a finger for us. There's no reason for God to approach us. There's no God for reason to accept us. There's no other reason for God to think about us for a split second other than the work of the saving sacrifice of the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Keep that in mind as we go. We won't always see the gospel clearly in this book. There are some there are some clues, there are some hints of the gospel, uh, but it, the name Jesus Christ does not appear, and so it won't be uh, as clear as we might otherwise uh, like it to be. So stay tuned, and uh, we'll we'll come back with um, we'll come back with the um, the next part, which will be about the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes. Thank you.